Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoos. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. Welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to literary agent Johnny Geller. We spoke to Johnny about his unorthodox entry to the world of literary agenting, about his approach to selling books, and how he combines the role of CEO with handling his authors. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Johnny, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's really good to have you on the show. I wanted to start with the idea of the bridge um, that came up in the TED Talk that you sent over to us, and also we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. But correct me if I'm wrong here, but the sense I got from that was your idea that selling a book to a publisher is about linking between something that is conceptually familiar with them and something that's novel. Could you expand a bit on that idea? Mm, well, hello. Um, and that's, uh, that's a perfect... Uh actually distillation of that idea it's just simply I was thinking about originality and you know when you go into publishing or when you're writing something you think about I want to do something that someone no one else has done before and that is obviously the noble pursuit and what we look for but when I realized that actually being in the practice of publishing and selling books I realized pretty soon that's early on that that wasn't what publishers were looking for they were looking for they all say they want something new and I believe they do but they wanted something that is uh, a bridge from what is familiar into something new. But if you leap straight into the new, they have no ways of selling it. They have no ways of describing it because of its newness. So they were in this sort of vicious circle. And what I was, I suppose, led on to think was that once you understand that idea, the question is, well, what have you written? How do you describe it? How do you sell it? And actually, from the very beginning of a writer's putting pen to paper through to sending to an agent, to, to selling to a publisher, to putting it on a bookshelf, there's a sort of line um, which is pretty consistent, which is if you can describe it to someone uh, very quickly, then you will probably sell it. But if you can't, you have a whole host of problems. And uh, I suppose that's where I was starting from, this idea of a bridge. I don't want to be this sort of deathly cynical uh, publishing type who says just write the same again with a tweak it's a bit more fundamental than that it's it's a look at the world as we see it but take us somewhere new um, hand in hand I read elsewhere that you said all of the greatest books and particularly classical stories can be summarized in a sentence you gave the example of Hamlet and Macbeth is that an exercise that you encourage your uh, writers to do 
Well, not really. It was something that I used to do at university. And, and uh, whenever I used to go and see a play, I said, well, actually, that was about this and that. And, and it was fun. I think it's a reductive exercise. And I think probably for a writer, it will end up in a cold sweat where they will uh, do it wrong or they'll think that it's too simplistic. Or, But what I, what I suppose I was getting at there is the amount of meetings I've had with young writers who I sit opposite and they say to me, you know, well, this book is about love or death or big themes, uh, redemption or about, uh, you know, and, I'm, and I always sort of say to them, what is the story? Tell me the story. And it can be an emotional story. It doesn't have to be a plot driven story, but tell me the story. And then I will understand what you're trying to get at and hopefully help with the edit. But until I know, until they know what they're writing, there's a, quite a problem. And, and a lot of writers don't until they've either finished it or even afterwards. Uh, a lot of writers I find really interesting because they, they tend to have one theme in their life and it's repeated over and over again in different novels. And every novel I get, they'll say, well, this one is completely different, Johnny. So, you know, I'll be, I, I, I'll be you know, totally prepared if you hate it. And I'm thinking <laughs> this is exactly the same. It's very good and it's in a very different story. But the themes and the things you're trying to say are the themes you've always been saying throughout your work. So uh, I find that quite reassuring, actually. Could we talk about the idea of, of sort of X meets Y? I don't know, again, if that's the way to phrase it, but again, looking at the, the talk you sent us, to where you say that to, to, to explain what a new piece of work is to a publisher, you'll say it's Girl on a Train meets Gone Girl or something like that. Is that a real, is that a, is that a Johnny Geller technique or is that very much a, a sort of industry technique? Well, look, I came out into the industry in the 90s and it probably wasn't used that much. It was much more of a film sort of pitch thing and uh, I think it was looked down on book publishing so I had fun doing it because nobody else was doing it and then of course it went too far and everybody was doing it and they were doing it badly or even I was doing it wrong and and actually now I think everything's calmed down and people really what you want to do with a pitch is give people a sense of the world that this book is going to inhabit and then the genre um, and and as I say with the bridge allow the publisher to feel comfortable that they know they can measure the sales of the potential of this book because it's in that area and you've been quite specific, but then give it a twist where the X meets Y, the Y is something that just surprises them. And they think, oh, I haven't seen that before. I'm interested, you know, because that's really the job is I've got to get people interested. You know, the worst phrase that a publisher can say to me when I'm pitching on the phone is, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at that. That sounds really interesting. You know, that to me is dead air. If someone says that to me, I just think, right, move on now. I'm going to find someone else. Or oh, the pitch wasn't right. It's got to be, oh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Or that sounds great. Or yes. Or, you know, there's got, you know, in the pitch whether you've got it right or wrong. But X meets Y can be helpful. Um, but again, if I was an author, I'd avoid it. You mentioned sales metrics. Um, what role does that play when you're pitching? And are you aware that you can use a reference to another popular book to increase sort of the appeal of it? Um, you know, how important is a sale, a previous book sales when you're pitching something to someone else? Yeah, it's very important. I mean, everything you do in a pitch is a is a, a some kind of reveal. So from the phone call. Um, right through to the actual talking about the book, you're trying to position the editor in a, in a way that they uh, are receptive and open to this idea. Um, and sometimes you do that by comparing it, as I say, to other successful books. And other times you totally abandon that. I mean, one of the good things that's happened in publishing in recent years is 
um, there used to be a reliance on a thing called book track where every single book that uh, if, if you sent an author's new book to a publisher, they would say, well, look, I just looked at the track of the last book and the sales in hardback were down. So my advance is going to be this. And you were really enslaved by that, those metrics. And, and they weren't helpful at all, because as we know, a good book can uh, confound expectations radically. So what's happened recently since the explosion of uh, demand from Amazon and from uh, the supermarkets is if you have the right book, no matter what your track record is, you, you have the potential to be huge. So that's very liberating. So everything is down to the strength of the book that you're selling at that moment. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is if you're a long career novelist and you're mid-career, you know, you, you, you don't want every book to be the, the most impactful and the most hyperbolic or the most, uh, you know, easiest to pitch. They just want to be good books uh, and you can be laid down, you know, weighed down by that. What is your methodology when you're making a pitch? Do you put in a call first and then send a proposal? Or, I mean, I know there are all sorts of like sleights of hand and sort of art for, for doing this. What is the, the Johnny Geller method? It's funny, I was talking to some colleagues about this because uh, one of my colleagues who's a very successful agent never calls and just sends very, very well thought through emails. And for me, that's, that's the opposite because I want to call because as I said before, what I need to do is hear from them what they really want. The, the call is as much about their reaction as it is about my pitch. I need to hear from that editor what they're looking for at the moment and whether this pitch is, is, is suitable for them. So it can inform me about how to sell this book beyond that. So for me, the phone call is absolutely crucial. And it's about gathering information. Um, and it's about also, they, they will know from the the timbre and the level of the pitch that I make about how serious this book is for me and for them. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this now 28 years. So they probably give me, I hope, some credit that if I'm going to say this is the best book I've read for a long time, they'll probably think maybe it is. But I don't do that with every book. And I, and I certainly, I think it's not a useful pitch, actually. But sometimes there are books that are not commercially that, lucrative but they really mean something to you uh, and then there are other books that are slam dunk box tickers and you think I'm going to have a lot of fun with this because this author just happens to have inadvertently stumbled on a hugely commercial idea and I know how to sell this um, so it's how you present those and then there's the vast majority which are in the middle which are just really interesting good books by someone who's at a point in their career so you're either selling the person or the book but you're selling you've got you've got to have a definite vision of either or both. Am I right in thinking that you were a door-to-door -door salesman in your youth? Yeah, I mean, I, I yes. I mean, uh, I was an actor after university. And when I basically, I spent most of my time doing those jobs paying for not being an actor. So I was doing a lot of telesales. And uh, one of the t things about telesales was, especially among actors, is they're really good at charming the unsuspecting public. But what they're not very good at is that last 10 seconds where you have to basically get the, get the sale. You have to close. And uh, what happens is I've, uh, friends of mine who were actors, I used to say, come along, you can get like loads of money uh, doing this very easy job. And they would come away at the end of the week with no money. And it's because they still wanted to be loved by the end of the phone call. And the problem is when you sell something, you can't always be loved. Um, and I think I realized there was something in me that didn't mind that, that I actually felt by the end of the call, no, no, 
you need to buy this and you need to buy it now. So for me, that was, and then, and then I did one, uh, yes, for three or four months, I did door-to-door selling, which is the hardest form of sales in the universe. And I'm very glad I did it, although I hated myself and it for, for all the time I did it. Can we ask what you were selling? Oh, it was called textured coatings. I wonder if it's still going. It was basically an alternative to paint for the outside of your house. And what the ruse was, was that you would say to people, there are surveys going along in the road, free surveys. Surveyors will be coming to your house, looking at your the problems you've got with your rendering and your roof. And uh, by the way, you know, do you want that? And of course, most people say, well, yeah, maybe. Why? And uh, what you were really doing is getting a salesman in their house to sell them this paint. And um, so it was a terrible job. But it was very interesting because ultimately it, it taught me how to sell and how to deal with all kinds of people and uh, be on a team. And so when I accidentally stepped into publishing and into agenting, I couldn't believe my luck because I was in a world where the editor takes you out for lunch to buy your product and hopes you want, you will send it to them. And it was like, so you mean there's no selling? There's no, I don't have to do anything. I don't. So actually what I learned was the soft sell was much more powerful and euphemism. You know, when you're doing hard selling and, and telesales, it's all about directness and closing. And publishing is all about how you use your words, how you get someone else to be more excited about the thing you're talking about than you are, you know, and uh, it was just a very different language. So I loved it. I remember talking to someone who'd also done door-to-door selling, or maybe it was secondhand from them, but they said that there's a, an idea that if you're trying to sell one thing, you should always offer three or something like that. There's a kind of psychology of the multiple versus the singular that I think it was like, if you turn up with, you know, th- like the orange juice and the milk and possibly something else at the door, your prospects are selling one of them a higher but you don't know necessarily which one they're going to get. I, I may be misquoting this, but what is your... Well, it depends on what you have to sell. I mean, you've only, you know, you've got to... It helps if you love your product, and that's the joy of working in publishing. But when I, when you don't love your product and you're not even that much expertise, what you have to do is uh, create uh, an opportunity in someone's mind for something that they never thought they wanted or needed. Um, and once you can do that, which is essentially storytelling, I mean, I don't want to sound pompous about it, but really... It's about interacting with someone on a very, very deep and personal level for a very short period of time and selling them a story that will make their life feel better. And some people love being sold to, tends to be salesmen actually. Salespeople love, are real suckers for other salespeople, or that people are lonely, or that they want to talk to someone, or that they end up buying something for the wrong reasons. Um, so it is, I mean, look, sales are fascinating. And, uh, and I, I often find that when I have... Um, you know, interns and people joining Curtis Brown, the last thing they, they realise is that it's actually a sales job. They, they've never thought about that. They think books and writing and publishing is all about conversations and, and creative collaborations. Well, of course it is. But really, it's about I, I want this book to sell. That's why I'm in the business. I'm in the business for this author to have a career so that they can pay their bills and carry on writing. Um, so for me, it's, it's always been quite goal oriented. Perhaps that was the curse of being a salesman while I was an actor. Um, sort of related to Simon's question, I guess when you have a meeting with an editor, you're thinking of a specific project that you think that they will like and that they will go for. But do you have something up your sleeve in case they don't? Do you have a sort of another project that you can fall back on if they just immediately shut it down? Yeah, I have a whole suitcase full of uh, products <laughs> for my... Yes. No, it's not quite like that. It, it's, it's a... You open your jacket. And... Yeah, exactly. There's, 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 if they want a watch, I'll get them a watch. No, it's not quite that. Um, I think in a way, 
as I was talking to you about the soft sell, what I used to revel in doing in the early days was uh, talk very a lot about a certain type of book. And then right at the end of the lunch, as we were leaving, I would say, oh, by the way, actually, this probably won't interest you. And that would be the one that they would email me afterwards or call me and say, you know, you mentioned that thing. Is it still available? Because I knew if I keep battering on about something, they're probably not going to be that interested or they might be excited. But it's the stuff where you just tease someone um, and you drop it in. So it's a little bit manipulative, but it's fun. Um, yeah. Can we roll back a bit to your the beginnings of your career then? So you're training as an actor and then why? how do you end up doing agenting tell us tell us the the origin story here well um how did i do it i basically i really wanted to be a director and an actor and when that didn't happen and i sort of had a midlife crisis at 25 i um, realized that well you know what am i good at and what do i love and i love reading reading was always something i used to do privately and it would be two or three books a week and i was obsessed with book collecting and but that was my own little passion I never thought it was a career in that. And uh, as I told you, the selling sort of came easy. So I thought, well, okay, if I've given up acting, what should I do? Well, perhaps sell books, you know. So I tried to get a job as a bookseller and I couldn't get one. And then in publishing, it was a very closed shop. You know, it was impossible to even get an interview. Um, and then I wrote a sitcom with a friend of mine and we sent it into Curtis Brown, uh, the, the TV agent there. And, and to our surprise, they called us in and I had a meeting with them. And in the end, it didn't go anywhere. But I said, are there any jobs here? So I didn't really know anything about agenting. And uh, there weren't any jobs. So I went back to acting for a bit. And then I did a short stint in publishing. So I didn't, I mean, I had no perception of what an agent was. Um, in fact, it was probably a negative. I, I've always, to be honest, I still don't like the word agent. I just don't think it reflects or, or, uh, or is at all what we do. But at that time, I was just desperate to get a job and I thought in the world of books would be good. So I did an apprenticeship there really for two years where I was on the reception. I was an assistant to two people. And I really thought, actually, this is a world that was very alien to me. I didn't have any contacts. I um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I probably encountered quite a bit of anti-Semitism, you know, very gentle, latent English anti-Semitism at that point, but it didn't really bother me. Um, and it didn't, but it certainly didn't feel like I was coming home or that this was an environment I want, I, I really belonged in. And then what happened was two years into the, uh, the job, my boss left for another agency and I was left really with nothing. And I was so angry because I was basically, I didn't have a job and, and happily Curtis Brown in those days was pretty dysfunctional. And there were two managing directors and they didn't talk to each other. So I essentially hid with no job for about two months. And I remember you used to have these borders, you know, where you're all sitting in the open plan and there's a kind of high, like almost a fence or something. And I used to hide. And what I did do was read all the unsolicited manuscripts, which was horribly called the slush pile in those days because it's just... Uh, and um, I found a book. I found this manuscript. Um, I fell in love with it. I thought this is just great. It was very pitchable. And it was about a guy who takes revenge on his school teachers. So you can describe it very quickly. And each chapter was a different subject. And it was uh, it was just very dark, very funny and very gripping. A bit like an Ian Banks or Ian McEwan novel. So um, I thought I had nothing to lose. And I just called up four publishers and I said, I'm the new agent at Curtis Brown. You haven't heard of me. It doesn't matter. This is the new Ian Banks. I've got it for you. And unfortunately, I may only have it to you for a few days, but listen, I'll send it if you want. 
Um, and uh, I went away that weekend. I remember it was in 1995 and um, it was a bank holiday weekend. And I, I literally didn't sleep that weekend feeling ill that I basically defrauded an author and was going to get fired. And I came back on the Tuesday and there were four little lights blinking on my um, on my arms machine, all from for the four publishers saying, we love this book, we want to preempt. And I had no idea what preempt meant, actually. So in the end, I had to go and ask someone. And uh, by the end of the week, I'd sold this book. It was called Acts of Revision for half a million quid um, all around the world. And so suddenly this guy who was working at a Bradford and Telegraph Argus for like 75 quid a week was could give up his job, buy a house and write for a, a career. And so I was really had the luckiest of lucky breaks um, and fell in love with it after that. I just was, became addicted. So that was my entry into agenting um, and, uh, you know, just tried to sustain it. It was a very easy period. I've got to say, when I look at my contemporary friends, uh, peers and people who are in their 20s, the, the dearth of debut novels in the 90s you know the, the the fact that anyone under 40 was almost a miracle to get published that left a great um market for me because I was one of the youngest agents and I was just selling book after book all by 20 somethings and 30 somethings and it was uh, it was a, it was a real it was it was fun I'd like to know more about when you you know you'd got those calls who did you go and tell within Curtis Brown to say, A, that you were still here and B, that you are now an agent? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, Jonathan Lloyd, who I don't know whether you know, he's, he used to run HarperCollins and he he left uh, HarperCollins about a year before I before this thing happened and became MD at Curtis Brown. And he was my kind of person. He just understood publishing in a different kind of way. And so as soon as I got those calls, I went straight into him and said, look, um, I think I may be in a bit of trouble here, but, you know, and he just laughed and, and sort of gave me some advice. And I did it each round. I went back, I covered my back in a way. And by the end of the week, there was a piece in The Guardian, actually. And it said that the, uh, told the story of this Martin Bedford, this author. And it also said at the bottom, and the assistant agent, assistant of Curtis Brown has now been promoted to agent. So I actually brought in the cutting to Jonathan and said, it says it in the papers. Uh, you got to make it happen. So we sort of laughed and uh, he did do it. He did. He did promote me. And then I had a, you know, I had to prove it. In other discussions with agents, the, the French sitcom Call My Agent has, has come up a number of times as a reference point. That, that sounds like a bit like a sort of potential Call My Agent uh, script line. Uh, it's, it's, call My Agent is almost too painful to watch now because uh, I, I don't think it's as relevant for books and authors as it is for actors. But because half my business is, uh, is talent uh, and actors, agents, I, I, I see many of those stories on a weekly basis. Uh, you, you know, so it is actually very credible. To me, it's a documentary. It's not a comedy, but it's very good. Yeah. I was just going to say there's an amazing amount of conflict in every scene of Call My Agent. <laughs> well, it's a very complex, I mean, on a serious note, it, it does get right, the complexity of the relationship between an agent and an author uh, or an agent and a client, because it's so, it's not like a lawyer or an estate agent where you go in for a transaction and then you never see them again. This is about, we're so enmeshed with, with an author's, life really uh you know when i looked after david cornwall you know john le carre he very much immersed me in his world he didn't he wasn't interested in someone who would give him the odd piece of advice and negotiate a contract i i needed to be at the heart of you know of all of his world 
and his family and his thinking and his work that spanned 60 years. And that, of course, was a great privilege, but it was very big responsibility. Not every author wants that. But. And could we just go going back kind of working chronologically from that, that breakthrough in 1995, how did your career develop and how did Curtis Brown kind of expand into the, the sort of empire that it, is, that it is today? Well, there was a lot of opportunity at Curtis Brown. There were 38 people there. There were sort of 17 directors. Um, it was a very old-fashioned business. And um, what perhaps I and maybe Jonathan brought was the idea that new writing could be as, as interesting as having a few famous writers and estates. So it was very much about the new. And that energy, I think, allowed other people to think something was happening at Curtis Brown. You know, um, at the book fairs, people always gravitate towards the new. Even if you've got, if you've got the most fantastic no- novel by someone on their fourth novel, uh, fourth, you know, trajectory, um, you can be ignored uh, by someone who's got a debut that's absolutely sensational. So I found that that is a bit absurd, that that's what happens. So I think what happened with Curtis Brown is we uh, expanded very quickly and grew and started to become much more of a serious agency. And then um, my view of agenting has always been that it's a 360 thing, that you know, if I have an author, I'm, I'm, I'm as concerned about what happens for them for television and film and podcasts and, uh, and the other parts of their life as just the book. And I think most literary agents at that time, really, they were literary agents. They, they, they dealt with international publishers and they waited for the success. Um, so I think that model of a larger agency, which really has a very strong film and television department that has actors. We only brought actors in in 2003. Um, you know, that was a big change. And although there are lots of acting agencies with literary departments, there aren't many agencies which are as big in literary as they are in talent because the cultures are so different. So what I think we've done is is basically build that bridge uh, between the, the two and to say to authors that actually if you have a good book, maybe I might attach it to a, an actor and a director and a screenwriter. And then that led to us to believe that maybe we should have a production company. And then that led us to believe that actually we need more more IP and more clients. So why don't we buy another agency? We bought Convent of Walsh, which I know you know very well. And uh, we then bought Ed Victor's business. And uh, I think that we, we did expand from 2016 onwards um, very, very fast. We bought about seven businesses in three years, which was perhaps uh, sort of ridiculously fast. But we were very absolutely convinced this was the right way to represent authors, um, is to have as much at your disposable first hand and not have to outsource it to other experts, the better. That was our thinking. Um, so that's partly a very speedy, uh, condensed journey. But uh, the, the, we did a management buyout in 2001. So I've been essentially man- in, in the managing of Curtis Brown since that time. And uh, now, I mean, last year, pre-COVID, we were at about 250 staff. You know, so it's, it's a much bigger place than when I started but I like to think it has the same values. How is your time divided between um, your management responsibilities and your responsibilities to your authors? Yeah it's a good question I mean I'm an agent through and through and that's what I love doing and that's what I get up in the morning to do and that's sort of 80% of my day but in the last five years 80% of the rest of my day is um, managing Curtis Brown and being the CEO. So I have this dual world where I just have to do both 
full on. You can't have Monday and Tuesday being CEO and Wednesday and Thursday looking after, you know, any of these authors. So I, I'm just doing both at the same time. But what's been really good is we've professionalized the business. I have, you know, a COO and I have a, a finance director and I have HR. You know, this isn't the usual model for agenting. Agenting has always been about keeping your costs low, a lifestyle business where an agent makes a lot of money one year, not so much the next, looks after a handful of writers um, and enjoys their life. Uh, I'm saying you can still enjoy your life in either model, but my model is very much about building a network around the author and a team that will perhaps be have, you know, we've got nine lawyers and several accountants, you know, we've invested in the business rather than just taking it home to the profitable agents. How was that perceived in terms of, you know, the kind of culture of publishing in London and, and things like that, that idea that you were going to do it professionally? And one thing's also of how, I suppose, Andrew Wiley was was perceived when he, he started operating in London. Was there a sense that, you know, there's a kind of gentlemanly code of British publishing and that this you shouldn't do it like this? Was there pushback? Yes, definitely. I think there was a huge amount of suspicion of me, uh, partly because of the whole sales thing. It's a bit vulgar and it's not quite how publishing is seen to be done. It's always about the the text and about the author. And, you know, of course, it's all about the text and the author. That's, that's, that's just a given. I mean, that's why we're in it. But for me, it was letting authors down by being amateur, it, you know, by not having proper uh, advisors uh, at to hand and not having um, the expertise internationally. So, I, I, I felt quite passionate about that. I could easily have set up on my own after my first few years of success and probably made a bit more money, but it would have been soulless and I would have hated it because for me, it's about a collegiate experience and building something together. Um, but at the time, I think the first phase as an agent is, well, you're an upstart because you're making a lot of money through advances. You know, you're getting ridiculous advances. It's bound to fall flat on its face. Then the second phase is, okay, he's had one or two hits, but it won't last. And then the third phase is, right, now he's telling us how to live our life. You know, and it's sort of, so at each stage, I, I actually don't care particularly. I just think publishing changes every five years so substantially. I just have to be ahead of those changes. And I knew pretty early on when the supermarkets came in and then when Amazon came in that publishing was going to con- uh, reduced to four or five big publishers and if we didn't sort ourselves out we would be crushed and irrelevant by these big publishers as they would take more and more rights away from the authors and we would be more and more reliant on one or two big authors which is not healthy for any agency so sorry to answer you i'm waffling i know but i think from what you the question about was there pushback yes but the good thing is Publishing has changed quite drastically since those 90s days where, you know, you had a lunch, you agreed over lunch, the wonderful um, uh, manuscript was worth X and you didn't have an auction. Now it's, um, you know, er there's proper training, there's real diversity uh, programs going on. So there's going to be even more change in the next year or so, I I predict. And um, and I I think it's in better shape. Agenting is not in a much better shape, I've got to say. I think it's still far too many agents in London. I think Writers and Artists Handbook, there was something like 300 agents. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, so I don't think agenting is particularly modernised, but publishing has had to. 
you uh, mentioned diversity programs and obviously this was a, a subject that was um of particular importance around the time of the george floyd protests um could you tell me a little bit about what curtis brown is doing to you know take on more writers of color and and, and make sure that within the company itself they're also progressing yeah no, i mean that's the crucial issue at the moment i think what we decided early on was we would rather act and invest than talk about it too much. So we, we have a creative writing school, which we set up 10 years ago, and we thought that was a really good vehicle to pay for scholarships and courses for people in underrepresented, underprivileged, or actually of colour uh, communities who may not think that, that, that these things exist. So we've just had our, we call it a breakthrough uh, course, and that, that was... Um, 15 people we had hundreds of people applying all uh paid for and uh paid for and, and with tutors so that was a big success and we're going to do that now regularly so we have a program there we also have mentoring schemes we have a diversity um group which is across, spans across the company that are involved in loads of initiatives one with hachette actually to do with um internships and we're going to try there's two things. You're right. There's two ways of changing. One is you change the people in the agency because you need to. So that means the trouble then is how do you find them? How do you train them quickly? How do you bring them in? That's a, a challenge. And the second thing is your clients. And I, I would say if you were to look at the talent side of our business in the television and film, it's very diverse and it always has been. There's been no issue there. Something about publishing attracting uh, writers of colour, writers who, who are, uh, you know, coming from underprivileged uh, backgrounds. That has been a real issue to get them to trust that sending in or us finding them, it will result in, in real progress. And we're going to, but we're confident that we're going to do that. We're, we're, we've got ways of doing that. Here's a message from our sponsor, Curtis Brown Creative. Are you writing a novel or thinking of starting one? If so, you'll be excited to hear that our sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the writing school that's part of the Curtis Brown Literary and Talent Agency, where this week's guest, Johnny Geller, is CEO and literary agent. CBC have been helping writers tell their stories for the last 10 years. Since launching in 2011, over 130 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including bestsellers Jane Harper, Jesse Burton, Claire Pooley, Anna Bailey and Nicholas Searle. They offer a wide range of online writing courses led by acclaimed authors on subjects such as novel writing, short stories, memoir writing and writing for children. Their hugely popular six-week online edit and pitch your novel course features teaching videos with exclusive pitching advice from Johnny Geller alongside other leading literary agents. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for listeners of Always Take Notes. You can use the code ATN20, that's ATN20, for £20 off the price of one of their four, six or ten-week online writing courses. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. In terms of your your own slate of writers as an agent, you represent some extremely well-known people, uh, John le Carre, William Boyd, Jay Rayner, and so forth. Why why are they coming to you? How have you been able to to 
gain the trust of these people? And is it is it financial? Do you get them more money, or what? What is it that you offer? Do you think that brings them? No, I don't think it's money. I think money is actually it's the thing that people most concentrate on. But actually, it's the least important thing. It's just a given. If you're an agent, you know how to make money. You know how to get the the deal is the least interesting part of my job. What's interesting is totally empathizing with a writer and understanding what they want to achieve. And that, I could be sitting in a room, you know, with Tracy Chevalier uh, talking about, you know, her latest research project and the span of her career, or David Mitchell about him trying to change the way fiction works, you know. But the the, the important thing is, I've got to be in that room 100% present and 100% with them. And they've got to feel, and they, and they know, I hope, that I would go to the barricades for them because I believe in them as writers and that they have importance in the world. So it's very difficult to do that for everybody, but I would like to think that I could justify every single person on my list and, and the people that I've worked with who may not be writing anymore for all these years because they meant something to me. And, you know, I've had extraordinary luck sitting in the same room as Gordon Brown or, you know, the Mandela Foundation or whoever it is that they don't all have to be famous people. But some great thinkers um, and writers, I know you've interviewed some of them, Matthew Syed and people, people who really are engaging with what's going on in the world. And then novelists, you know, I always find every novel is a kind of miracle. I mean, you know, what is the, the guarantee that anyone will read your story, you know, when it's made up? And I, I find if they can keep doing it, they're sort of amazing. Um, so why they stay with me, I don't know. You have to ask them. I hope uh, they stay with me because... I know what I'm doing and I'm 100% behind them. And I think one of the things I learned very early on was always be responsive and be, be speedy. Um, and I think I totally uh, decimated my opposition in the mid-90s because I was the only one who would read a manuscript overnight, get back to the author, sign them by the Friday. And I think in, that, in those days, it was much more leisurely. You know, it would take a couple of months. You might have a meeting. You know, for me, it was all about the energy and enthusiasm. And it, it still is. You know, I hate it. I hate, absolutely hate keeping people waiting because I know what it was like as an actor waiting by the phone. You know, I, I've, I've tasted that, uh, that, that particular delicacy. When you get a manuscript for the first time, how long does it take you to work out whether there's something in it or not? I mean, you hear rules of sort of by the end of the first page or by the end of the first three pages or the 10 pages. Do you have a rule like that or do you just, you know, wait to see if you keep on turning the page? It's easy to turn one page of a bad book and get rid of it. And it's easy to keep turning the pages of someone who's just got it. And those, you know, obviously the people who can't write far outnumber the people who've got it. But the worst is those people in the middle where you think this is not gripping me, but they can write. And actually the story is kind of interesting, but I don't want to keep reading. And then you've got to make this terrible decision of maybe I'm in the wrong mood and maybe actually it gets better. So many books I've read are so much better once you're a few pages in. I just can't help but feel on the sales side of it, I'm never going to get an editor to engage unless that first chapter is good. So then it's a question of me because I don't get paid. I only get paid on results. Do I spend months or weeks with that person to get it right? Well, I have to make a decision on whether I think that that's worthwhile use of my time. I mean, for me, I would, I'm desperate to get back to taking on new writers, but I've been very privileged in the last 10 years uh, or 15 to work with, you know, some very, very 
you know, great ones. And um, and you can't, you don't have the headspace, the energy needed to invest in a new writer. So I tend to take one or two writers on a year. Uh, I would love to take on 10. And, you know, and one day I, soon, I'm sure I will. But I've got plenty of brilliant colleagues now. We've built up a very good set of agents who, who all have different experiences and they all really know what they're doing. So I think I would always point someone in the right direction. Could we talk about uh, David Cornwall, J- John le Carre, how, how you came to represent him? And I was wondering where you fitted into his, his world after Rainer Hoyman. Did you get the job after Rainer died? Um, or how did, it, how did it work out? Um, no, that was, he had an agent in London called Bruce Hunter for many years at David Hyam. And uh, I think Bruce was nearing retirement. And what I discovered at the age of 40 or just before is that it's a great age for anyone in, in, because it's that moment where the doors start opening. You've done all the, the training in the 20s and the hard work in your 30s. And then suddenly you've gained a little bit of experience and you've also gained a, a reputation that, that hopefully is kind of okay. So when I was around that age, I got a phone call out of the blue from an editor who said, are you looking for new clients? And I said, look, do you know what? I'm just totally up to my eyes now. I'm really sorry. And he went, oh, oh, well, never mind. And I sort of said, well, who are you thinking of anyway? And they said, David Cornwall. I mean, I'm ready. Just get, you know, this afternoon, I'll be there. Um, and uh, he then called me out of the blue. Uh, and, which, and I just went to see him in his house. And it was like, I can't quite believe I'm seeing John McCarrick. You know, I, so I, I, I went as a fan and I just sat there. And what I realised he wanted was not you know, the leading expert or, um, of spy fiction in the world, or he wanted someone who knew how to deal with publishers, who would have the courage to say to him this direction and not that, and someone who would be 100% on his side and gets really what, what, uh, what his mission is. And so he took a huge leap of faith by plucking me out of nowhere, you know, to say, I'm now going to entrust my entire work with this this guy I don't really know very well. Um, and I absolutely, I think, you know, tried to rise to that challenge and say, look, trust me, I'm not going to let you down. This is going to be, you know, a very exciting journey. And the fact is I do have other clients. I'm not going to just abandon them all and have you. And he, I think he liked that, actually, because it keeps you in the game. And, uh, you know, and so that's... So that was the beginning of a very, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the most important relationships in my life. I feel like lots of agents have, uh, shall we say, regrets about clients they didn't take on or books that they missed. Do you, you must have a couple yourself. <sighs> no regrets. Um, <laughs> I don't live like that. I think, look, there are there are moments where I've lost a deal and I read about it in the book and I thought, oh, that could have been. But then they didn't go on to become bestsellers. They've been, what I tend to do, where I've made mistakes is where you meet someone of talent, but the book isn't right. And you say to them, you don't sign them on the spot, knowing that that book can't sell, but they're good. And I think once or twice, I've let those slip. And then they've gone on to write great books. And I thought, you know what? I was too driven by the idea that I can't actually sell this for you. But I always remember Howard Jacobson came to me. I knew him personally, and I was a huge fan of Howard Jacobson. I've always loved his books. And he uh, he took me out for lunch and, say, and, and said, look, I am thinking of a different agent, you know. And I was thinking, wow, I can't wait. And then he sent me his book, and uh, he said to me, how, 
I hope this isn't indiscreet for Howard. I said, uh, he asked me, how much do you think I'll, you know, is this worth on the market? What, what would be the advance? And I guessed, and his face, he looked so sad. And I said, oh, sorry, did I insult you? And he goes, no, you got it completely right. That's what I get. And then he decided not to go with me because of that. And then a year later, he called me back and said, if you can bear it, let's meet again. We met again, we had a laugh, and he sent me his new novel. And this time I learned. I didn't promise him something I couldn't deliver. I just said to him, don't worry, let me, let me sort this out. I will, I will sort your problems out. And uh, we started a relationship, I don't know, it must be 20 years now, that's been one of the best in my life. You know, he's an incredible writer. And uh, we then had this amazing uh, piece of luck and, and, and fun when he won the Booker Prize. And suddenly, you know, all the things that he'd been building for happened. Can we ask about dealing with estates? And I was particularly interested in, in the, the Fleming estate and then James Bond and also how, it, how you got William Boyd to, to write a Bond novel. How does you know, being part of a, the Bond family work and the broader business of, of estates? Well, the broader business of estates is really interesting and I think that's going to be very important um, as we go forward. And we've now, you know, we've now developed a whole department called the Heritage Department and you should at some point speak to Becky and Nora, they are absolute experts and enthusiasts on, you know, on on, on backlists and, and, and estates. But for me, Fleming is is a brilliant estate because they're totally separate, the film Flemings and the literary Flemings. And the literary Flemings have a very, very specific goal, which is to get people to read those original classics and to keep literary bond alive rather than just Daniel Craig spin-offs. So they're very, um, you might not expect this from estates, but they're pretty innovative. They take a lot of risks. They debate everything. They're serious people. And it's not all about money. It's about, in fact, actually, often it's not. I've turned down heartbreakingly lots of things uh, that we could have done. But where it's fun is you. most people, most writers do like James Bond. And, and to give someone... Um, the chance to play in that playground, uh, you know, whether it was Sebastian Folks or Jeffrey Deaver and then Will Boyd and most recently Anthony Horowitz. They've just loved it and it's been a great experience. And we've got some, we've done Young Bond and we're doing we're doing a couple of projects which we're about to announce actually um, to try and keep that whole thing alive. So those kind of estates are really exciting. It's, uh, it's when people inherit an estate, don't really know anything about publishing don't really aren't really interested that are most difficult to manage and uh, but I think there's huge potential um, you know in that area. Could we talk a little bit about um, about an agent's income? Um, I actually used to work for an agent who I won't name for his own privacy um, but he said that agent salaries are are not huge and it's obviously commission on top of that so it can be pretty feast and famine um, depending on on the year that you have and the clients that you have and the deals that go through. Um, does that say as much or as little as you like but does that fit with your experience? No um, I think it's a really um, it could be a very lucrative job um, it just depends on how patient you are. I think starting off it's hard because, I mean, look at the mechanics of, of a deal. If I sell your novel for £100,000, and that's sort of seen as perceived as a good deal, it's going to be split over three or four payments. So say it's split most generously over, say, four payments. That's £25,000. Now, if I charge you 10 or 15%, let's say 15, because that's the standard, uh, of the 25, 
Well, we're talking about three, three and a half thousand pounds, aren't we? So for a young agent, they're going to have to do a lot of those deals to make the three and a half thousand pounds add up to make a salary. So as an agency, if you believe in someone, you pay them a good basic salary. And then um, you then, I think, have a transparent bonus scheme, which says if you bring in X multiple of your cost, the majority of or a portion of whatever happens after that goes back to you. So people can start planning how they live their life and they can start actually having a proper salary. In the old days, it was so discretionary. People you know, worked so hard, long hours. They didn't, because of the luck of the draw, make much money. And then they were kept at a very low salary for years. And I think that model was completely wrong. And it didn't encourage anyone to see it as a business. It just encouraged them to see it as a lifestyle. So I think there is a period, and then there's a moment where your client list takes off. And that moment tends to correspond when a book does well in America, because that transforms everything. And this uh, America, Germany, and possibly France, where they do not have uh, a high discount clause. I don't know how technical you want me to get in here, but essentially authors earn their royalties um, through you know, sales of their books and a, and, a, and a proportion of those sales of the books come back to them after they've earned their advance out. The problem is in Britain is that because supermarkets and Amazon demand very high discounts from publishers, the publishers demand cuts in royalties to the authors. So you could have a massive hit in Britain and actually look at a royalty statement that isn't that impressive. But the same book with the same sales in America, because they don't have the high discount provisions or they're not allowed to beyond a certain amount of sales, it can totally transform your world. So that's for authors as well. But for agents, that's the moment where agents start to realize that this is a business. And uh, so that's why I've always seen it as an international business. I see it as we have a fantastic culture in this country of writers and creative talent. And it's our job to get them out into other territories, not just so they can earn more money, but just because they deserve it. I read with real interest the, the bookseller piece that you sent over from, I think, 2012, but about this idea of, I suppose, authorial primacy of the idea that it's, you know, that the author is key here and that their views should be respected and so forth. Do you, th- do you think, I mean, I, I've sometimes wondered whether there is a sense almost that it's easy for publishing professionals to think that they are the professionals and almost the author is almost not an obstacle, but it's a sort of thing to be managed or a thing in between. How, how common is that culture and, and what, what were your motivations for writing that piece and the reaction to it? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't realise that I was writing a, a manifesto. It was called a manifesto by the bookseller. I just sort of thought a few thoughts about my frustrations in my job, which was time and time again, the publisher knew best. And this person who'd spent three years on a book, especially nonfiction, where they really are experts, are then told to shut up. They said, look, you know, okay, they may not know what is the best cover for, for a supermarket or what the best blurb is. And that's where we need expertise. But it is absolutely ridiculous to think that the person who knows most, who's lived and breathed this book, then has to give over all the power to a publisher of which, you know, most publishers have hundreds of books to sell at that season. And there's never going to be, a, you know, they'll, you'll become a priority when the book starts selling. But if it doesn't sell, you're pushing against a brick wall. So for me, I was incredibly frustrated. And I got, you know, a lot of pushback. And, 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 but I think, in a way, 
it was true, and it's still true. I think it's improved a lot. I think authors, uh, I used to have to go, after that piece, I tell you, I, kept, I was invited to virtually every single publisher's conference to talk about author care. And that annoyed me because that made me, what are these, that kind of care in the community? It's like authors are not these people that we have to either tuck with kid gloves or bully. They're simply resources that you're not using. And you're crazy because they know one thing about David Cornwall, William Boyd, Howard Jay, all these people we talked about, David Nichols, David Mitchell, they know their readers. They've gone out on tour, spoken to them. They've, they've received the abuse on social media. They've had emails and letters. They know exactly who their reader is. And it's not about a focus group. It's about listening to them. And I still believe it because often, um, you know, uh, they, they teach me things. And then, then I try and get the publisher to rethink their, their, their strategy. We're coming towards the end of our time, but I wondered whether we could um, talk briefly about the future of agenting. You've mentioned that there's a lot of agencies and possibly it's a you know saturated market. Uh, you also wrote a piece for the bookseller in which you expressed a sort of uh, fascination with the idea that agents might be disintermediated out of the picture. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I think that was probably a reaction to the whole fury over Amazon. When Amazon entered into the market and there was self-publishing, I never believed that. I didn't think, I think we have a very specific role in the publishing firmament, which is about curation. What's really interesting, what emerged out of the diversity issues is what does that curation mean? Is it a gatekeeper that's holding people out or is it uh, a more dynamic and positive thing about curation? And that's the debate that's going on in agenting, which has to happen. Look, fundamentally, I think agenting is at the heart of the business. And although people don't like the word agent and a lot of people don't even know what, still after 28 years, people say to me, so who do you publish? And I'm going, I don't publish anyone. My job is to manage the careers and uh, lives of writers. And uh, that's seen as a sort of side issue. But actually, we have a say on every single element of the publishing process, from the cover to the title to the author name sometimes, to the blurb. And I'm not saying the publishers don't do a good job in those areas, but often we, we an author will sell their book to a publisher and think, well, they must love it. They paid this money, so I'll just trust them. And I'm thinking they paid this money, they've forgotten about it, and they've done something else. And you're the only one who's, who's going to suffer if this book doesn't go anywhere. Um, so we need to hold them accountable. And we need to say to them, have you really thought that through? All I care about when I sell a book to an editor is, are you the type of person who is going to stay up late at night worrying about this author or do you not care? And that's often my, my benchmark. I'm thinking, who's going to worry more than me? And then I want to work with that person. Julie, that's a, a great place to draw us to a close. Thank you for being such a, a fascinating and, and candid guest and um, telling us all the, all the secrets of your, your industry. Um, it's been brilliant and a lot of fun as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been great. I really enjoy your podcast, by the way. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Johnny Geller. You can follow him on Twitter at Johnny Geller. And if you'd like to read more about his clients, go to curtisbrown.co.uk slash agent slash Johnny Geller. Hello, we hope you enjoyed that interview. We wanted now to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards 
including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donor, Stephanie Zia. Stephanie Zia is an author turned publisher turned author. Before setting up her own publishing operation, Blackbird, in 2010, she'd published two commercial women's fiction novels and two non-fiction titles. She now divides her time between editing and publishing her small stable of authors, writing her next novel, and teaching online creative writing workshops. She also co-hosts a culture show for Purple Beach Radio, which is a corporate enterprise. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Rosie Nixon, editor-in-chief of Hello Magazine. Here's a snippet. So actually, I managed to turn what felt like a failure into something that has made it a much better book and was able to take my time with it. And I think having the confidence to speak up about what you're going through and having the confidence to say no at times, to kindly say, no, I can't make this work, um, could work to your benefit and you could turn a failure around. Um, And a trait that um, a good It's us again uh, with our swift post-mortem of the episode. Uh, Rachel, what did you um, take away from the conversation with Johnny? I think I was struck by the um, the way he talked about being a salesman and always have some, having something to sell at meetings. I mean, it's, it seems like an obvious point, but one that he sort of explained fairly thoroughly. How about you? I was struck by his, his point about how he kind of sought to professionalise literary agenting. This was a very kind of very traditional world in which no one talks about money and stuff like that and how he came in and wanted to turn it into a into a proper business which I think is laudable um anyway Rachel what have you been up to otherwise I've been finishing the interviews for the profile I mentioned a couple of episodes back and um I'm about to start a book for a book review and various other things how are you you've just come back from a a rejuvenating week of annual leave a a rejuvenating freelancer staycation yeah um I was saying I actually did more or less have some time off which was good um, I work really briefly it's head of the middle but I feel yeah I think I just realized I was I was super tired after all the stuff with my with my book coming out um so I had a had a really nice time in London uh went up to see my parents and yeah now back um looking forward to getting back in it so definitely it was something was well worth doing Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter, at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding page, we're on there at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.